There's no business like show business. From actors, writers, directors, and behind-the-scenes crew, everyone loves being part of the biz, and everybody loves those Hollywood stories. My name is Bob McCullough. I'm married to Suzanne Herrera McCullough, and between the two of us, we've got over 200 hours writing, producing, directing, or acting in some of the most classic television series and movies of all time. We've had pretty high-profile careers working with a wide range of celebrity talent and helping beginners get their start in the business, so people have always told us we should write a book. Well, we think getting our story out this way could be a lot more fun, so let's jump in. A chicken joke! I'm Mrs. Cleaver. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller plays. Technology. Dynamite! Nanu, Nanu. Baby, you're the great. Here comes the judge. Small cowbell. Isn't that special? Not that there's anything wrong with that. And now for something completely different. There's no business like show business, like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are Welcome back to Where Hollywood Hides. This is podcast number two. My name is Bob McCullough. And my name is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. And we are husband and wife. And we are enjoying... We are? We are. As a matter of fact, it was our anniversary. Can't you tell it's husband and wife, (laughs) the way we interrupt each other? It was our anniversary yesterday. It was. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary to you, too. Uh, So here we are in podcast number two. And I guess we're continuing with the uh, saga of uh, Bob's ego trip or his lifestyle. Well, um, I thought we would um, start up when you were uh, doing all the game shows on TV. You have a couple of really good stories. But before then, I want to mention, I just read in the trades that uh, Dallas, the old nighttime soap opera, is back. Yeah, with JR. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, that's kind of close to our hearts because uh, you did Falcon Crest and you were involved in the whole uh, rage of nighttime soaps, Falcon Crest, Flamingo, Flamingo Road, Road, uh, Dynasty, Dallas. Right. Actually, Um, Falcon Crest just followed Dallas. That Dallas kind of gave us our opportunity. Right. And it aired and it got pretty good ratings. So let's hope. uh, Hope, Let's hope it stays on. Yeah. Yeah. Might mean good things for Falcon Crest. Yeah. JR is as mean as ever. Right. So you want to go start back with my quiz show? Uh, yeah, what really got me going in show business? Right, and then you have a couple of great stories. So. Okay, and what got me really interested in getting into the television business? Well, as I said earlier, I was going to USC and looking for ways to make money and came across uh, want ads basically looking for quiz show contestants. And since I lived in Los Angeles, it was pretty easy to make interviews. And I wound up getting, uh, I don't want to say gigs, but I became a contestant on shows like Password with Alan Ludden and Betty White. I remember. I love Betty White. She's still around. Indeed. And uh, I did a thing called Joker is Wild with Jack Berry. This is when quiz shows were really hot. You had to, like, know a couple of stupid So you ended up kind of being a professional 
well, game show contestant. Yeah, semi perfect. Yeah, I mean, we'll let an audience decide about that. You, you were, did a lot. You were only supposed to be on one quiz show per year. That was the FCC rule. Oh, but that didn't stop you. As a matter of fact, I was on um, the dating game five times in about eighteen months. Mm-hmm. And what amazes me is they never, they never busted me on it. I mean, I'm the same person. I wasn't using aliases or anything. But I kept coming back, and the questionnaire said, have you ever been on TV before? And I always just checked no. You lied. I lied. Uh, I but, could never do that. But I had a, I had a great time. Um, of the five times I was on the dating game, I, I won three times. So before you go on to your sure. funny stories, sure. why do you think you won so many times? Well, or I a, why they liked you on so many times? I think because I wasn't normal. Um, well, I know that. <laughs> when when you were asked a question, if you answered it straight, that was kind of boring, and everybody knew the answer anyway, or really didn't care what the answer was. For example, we were on the air once, and I think that I had, uh, I actually think I had Bruce Jenner on one side and Bob Segrin, the pole vaulter, on the other side. Bruce of me. Jenner, now I was there's the, a name. I for was you. the only non-athlete on the show, as I recall. These guys were, you know. Very good looking and really in physical shape. And I was kind of this smaller person. But the the question from The Bachelorette, and do you remember how the show used to be formatted? Sure. There'd be a girl. Well, I wasn't that old, so I looked up when I was in my crib, and I took oh. a good look. <laughs> yes, I so, do. Uh, there'd be a partition between The Bachelorette, the girl, and the three uh, contestants, the three guys trying to become the girl's date. So there's a partition. So you couldn't see the girl and she couldn't see you. And she would ask a bunch of questions that were scripted for her by the show's writers. And she would listen to the answers. And then based upon those answers, she'd make a selection as to who the date would be. So It really wasn't a bad concept. It was fun. It was really mm-hmm. kind of cute. So, for example, the for, it feels like what sticks in my mind is the question, if you were a tree, what kind of a tree would you be? Oh. This girl would say this insipid question. And the guys would say, well, I'd be a palm tree because... I like the beach. Or the answer might be, well, I'd be a maple tree because they're so big and strong. Ooh, that's a good one. Well, I would never answer that question. I would answer it with, she'd say, what kind of a tree would you like to be? And I would say, I would be a Felipe's uh, French dip sandwich because that's where I'm going to take you for lunch as soon as we get out of here. So I wouldn't even answer the question. And she would always say, what was he saying? What was that? What did that number two guy say? So I always gave a non-answer, a, a so non-sequitur. Kind of a crazy person on the other end of the screen. I, I was the crazy person. And that, some girls like crazy guys. Well, she couldn't forget the crazy person. She'd yeah. always remember the, whatever my bachelor number was. And so I batted 600. I got three out of the five shows. I got to go on dates. And um, some were better than others. Uh, one was particularly... Were you always... Were you always pleasantly surprised when you came around the screen to see what the girl looked like yeah i mean the girls weren't horrible uh one time i won the girl was actually an incredible knockout something of a a real hottie Uh uh-huh and i was pretty excited uh and we went out on a date and it was the the typical you know they have a chauffeur a chaperone and a photographer goes with you and you go to uh, I don't know, a little play at the Amundsen Theater or something in a, you know, kind of a formal dinner. And that's the date. And they would document the thing very carefully. Well, this one girl, uh, I think she was a student at UCLA, and she was very attractive. And I said, look, why don't you and I get together and have like a real date, just the two of us? And I remember she told me that I was fine with her, sure, uh, if I could pick her up at work, uh, say on a Friday night, 
and I couldn't pick her up until like 11 o'clock. Well, that didn't seem so late in those days when you're in college, you know. It's not late these days either. So uh, she gave me the address, and I had no idea where this place was. So I thought I'd scout it out first to find out where she worked. And I drove by the address, and it was up on Sunset Boulevard, and it was the body shop, which was an infamous strip joint in West Hollywood. (laughs) Oh, your dreams have been answered. And I didn't know what the deal was. I was hoping she was the accountant there, the receptionist or something. So on a weeknight, I just cruised by, and I snuck in. Were you excited? I was a little intimidated. Again? Anyway, so I went in on a weeknight before the date just to check it out. And there she was up on stage twirling tassels. And I realized Does I was... Does that mean she was like almost naked? She was a stripper. And I realized I was really out of my element and going to be in over my head. And tell you the truth, I never called her. I never picked her up. <gasps> and I just... Bob, she was probably... I completely wimped out. She, she's probably a doctor right now. She was probably studying at UCLA and going yes, to meds. Yeah, I'm sure. And she was probably working her way through college. She was more advanced than I was. I'll Apparently. put it that way. I'll put it that way. I was just this straight arrow oh. cheerleader idiot oh. from USC. That's right. You were a, a yell leader. leader at SC. Right. Don't ask me how that happened. It was just crazy. I just wow. I went out for it and got yeah. it. It's kind of like being a quiz show contestant. I think if you're willing to try stuff, sometimes you get lucky. Are there lucky. still yell leaders? Yeah, but, it, but now it's uh, male and female. So there was no females at During the time. During my day, it was strictly males. Yeah, it was a very conservative school uh-huh. at the time. So I guess I've always liked uh, performing or getting up in front of people or at least seeing if I can get picked. It's called being a show-off. I could vouch for that. <laughs> you like being a show-off. So, okay, so I like being a show-off. So... Um, so, but being on those quiz shows kind of got me inspired, as I said earlier, uh, about a television career. And um, after I left school and went to Hawaii to kind of just ditch the draft for the summer, I wound up in grad school down at University of Texas. And how'd you get there? Well, I had a half brother at the time who was pretty much the prodigy of the grad school in the television film department, and he promised me I could get get in. So I went down there and had an interview with the chairman of the and department. His, his name was Steve McCullough. Steve McCullough. And Steve said uh, I could come down and meet the chairman of the department, which I did. And the chairman was looking at my resume or my file or my transcript and said, you know, your brother's really bright and we love him and we'd love to have you, but your grades do not qualify you for graduate school. Yeah, you're stupid. Right. <laughs> and I, I'd been on too many quiz shows. So... Uh, I basically begged Stan Donner. I said, look, if I get a B, a single B, if I don't get straight A's, you can drop me from the program, no questions asked. But if I don't get into graduate school, I'm going to wind up going to Vietnam. And he was kind of a left-wing guy. He wasn't pro-war at all. Well, aren't they all in college? And he understood my plight, and he said, okay, but not one B. So I worked very hard. I went down to Texas, packed up my little Volkswagen, and... Drove down to California off- boy going to Texas. That must have been quite an it awakening. Was. Yeah, and I had a Volkswagen that was covered in paisleys and of course hand painted flames and stuff. This is in the sixties. It was right? a real hippie car, right? So I wind up in Texas and I make myself the most academic guy you've ever seen, and I become I become the next prodigy, I guess, uh, to the point where I got very good grades and I was selected to go to a kind of a highfalutin seminar up at Stanford University in Palo Alto, uh, which was hosted by TV Guide at the time, was the most widely read magazine in the country. And TV Guide brought together a number of producers and studio executives 
to basically sit around and talk about theories of communication. Are you, are you talking about the TV guy, the little yeah. booklet yeah. that where all the TV shows were on? Right, right, right. I, I never thought of it as a magazine. It was the most popular, most widely read magazine in the country at the time. No, so, you're right. And they, I had, read it. and they had, you know, a lot of money. And they would invite all these guys from all the networks and all the major producers of the major shows up to a conference grounds up in, in Palo Alto. And they sat around. And so they brought six students, three from Texas and three from Stanford. And we sat around with these executives and talked about Marshall McLuhan and theories of communication and stuff like that. And I happened to meet, among others, Fred Silverman, Grant Tinker, of Mary Tyler Moore fame, and a man named Herb Schlosser. And these were all very big guys behind the scenes. Huge. huge. Most people would know the names. Moguls, the huge, the the biggest. And Herb Schlosser and I had a chance to sit around and talk for quite a bit, and he said, next time, if you ever come out to California, he didn't know I was from California, if you ever come out to California, look me up, uh, maybe I can help you out. Well, that's all I wanted to hear. And, of course, as soon as I was done with my... um, academic curriculum at University of Texas, I drove right back out to L.A., and the first person I called was Herb Schlosser, president of NBC. And that was a big deal. It was a, it was an incredibly difficult phone number to get, but I had it because he'd given it to me. And I went and had an interview with him, and he said, Bob, you have a great future, blah, blah, but I want you to learn everything from the bottom up. I didn't know what he meant by that, but I'm figuring, okay, I'll be a network vice president because I have a grad, I now have a master's degree sure. in communication. Overly educated. I said, I'm, I'm, the, I'm your man. And he takes me down to the page department. The page staff was really just a glorified terminology for ushers. Sure. So you wore a, you wore a little blue blazer and a red necktie and gray slacks and a name tag, and you got to be the usher for all the quiz shows, the audiences. Why do you say audiences. that with such disdain, a name tag? Well, because... It, did you think you were, like, like, too the, above it? Yes, I did. I, I'm, You know, you have a master's degree. Long story short, I spent about three months ushering old ladies into Let's Make a Deal. and But I did have more exposure to some really incredible celebrities. And I was the head usher, the head page, if you will, on shows like uh, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Oh, I love that show. The Dean Martin Show. And I was an usher, a page, on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Did you ever meet Johnny Carson? Never met him personally, because he was kind of an aloof guy, sure. a little distant. But it was great experience and great exposure. i got to ask you about Laugh-In. Sure. Goldie Hawn. Cute. Did you skinny, very get to skinny. see her in person? Every 10 minutes. She was huge for laughing. Well, she that's where she was really discovered. She was a breakout personality. She was just so crazy. I just love when they did all that psychedelic paint on her body. They, had the, so... joke, they had the joke wall where people's heads oh, would yeah, pop out of yeah. the wall. Oh, yeah, and then they had the dirty old man. Right, Artie with, Johnson with, and Ruth Buzzy. Yeah, with the bag. It was just great. Right. It was well, just great. As the, as the usher, the page, I was the guy standing outside the stage while they were rehearsing. And I'm answering the phone because I don't want the phone ringing on the set while everybody's trying to rehearse. Right. I was taking messages for all these stars. And so I got to know them pretty well. So what kind of stars were there? Because there were guest stars coming and going. Sure. Well, you name them. They, they came through that. Um, the one that impressed me the most, and they would have major movie stars come by and they'd give them one joke to tell and they'd shoot it and they'd be in and out. And yeah, it was a huge show. And I had, remember I'd been around celebrities and movie stars and TV stars Growing up. a lot of my life in Beverly Hills. The one who impressed me 
it still impresses me to this day. The, the memory of what happened, I'm, I'm on the set answering phones, and I open the door, and there is a man wearing kind of a gray uh, herringbone suit with a perfectly knotted necktie and, the, and just unbelievably coiffed graying hair. And he says, hi, how you doing? And it was Kirk Douglas. He's still alive. He's a fabulous guy. And he is one of our neighbors. Yes, we used to live right across the street. And all I remember is feeling that he was 12 feet tall. And that's the bearing he had. This was, I think, just the personification of charisma and presence. And when he walked onto that set, and understand, it, the set is full of stars. Everybody gravitated toward him. I kind of wish he'd run for office because he would have won any election just because people were drawn to him. He had that kind of charisma and magnetism. And I've just never forgotten that's what star power is, in my opinion. You know, he, he's an incredible man. You know, we all know he's had a stroke. He's had many, many, many um, movies that he's made and stuff. Uh, but, you know, I did a little reading on him, and mm-hmm. he's an author of many books. A number, yeah. And he just completed another book. And he's in his 80s. Something of a Talmudic scholar writes books about uh, the Jewish faith and yeah. his own faith. And, his and even recovery. though he can't speak very well and his face is, you know, uh-huh. shows that he's um, had a stroke, that doesn't stop him. No, this guy got great energy. Yeah, I'm very impressed presence. with somebody like that. You know? so I, and do you realize also he's never won an Academy Award? You're kidding. No, he's been acknowledged and recognized. Uh, same thing with Tom Cruise, only I don't know if I would put him in the same category because Tom Cruise is not that old yet. Well, maybe Tom Cruise has the same kind of magnetism and charisma when he well, walks in the th- room. Well, I think the... Uh, the um, you know, they're just so present when you're with around people like yeah. that. They are just so in that moment with you that it's compelling. Well, I think the Academy, which is a group of a body of people who vote for Best Actor and Best Picture, I think they must be exceptionally hard on people who are who have everything, looks, talent i suppose i, I suppose. it must be because kirk douglas never you know, won an academy award no that's... but i don't think he really ever catered to the academy no if no. you remember uh the movie spartacus which was his really claim to fame back in the uh late 50s early 60s where he plays this the roman slave he produced that picture and he employed dalton trumbo who had been blacklisted uh, and could not find work and a fine writer and Kirk Douglas is the one who broke the blacklist by employing Dalton Trumbo so the, the guy had a lot of courage as well a professionally lot going on. yeah and creatively well I just think it was interesting that he's an iconic name still alive and uh, never really won an Academy Award yeah. anyway so we do digress but that was a, a great experience for me on the set of Laugh-In and while I was at NBC uh, I became aware of a job over at Paramount Studios that um, where they hired a production assistant and then you kind of were trained to become a production coordinator and then maybe an associate producer or maybe an assistant director. And I heard about this guy who hired somebody every April from the NBC page staff. Now, there are about 16 or 18 pages at NBC, so he had quite a talent pool to draw from. And to even get on the page staff, you had, had to have a college degree. So I'm just curious real quickly, how much were they paying you being a page at Laugh-In? Just 80, to get a feel for eighty-five dollars a week. That was standing a in the lot heat, standing in the heat in Burbank in a coat and tie. It sucked. Yeah. It really did. But I heard about this job, and I, I understood it didn't open until November. And I got the guy's name, who was actually the guy who did the hiring every April. And I knew I didn't want to wait in line between behind sixteen other guys. 
and compete uh, on that playing field. So I got a, an NBC envelope, like an inter-office mailing envelope, but it had a giant NBC logo on it. And I went over to Paramount Studios, and I knew the name Barry Crane, that he was the man doing the hiring. And I drove up to the studio gate, and I had my NBC envelope, and I said, hi, I'm here, I have, to, I have an envelope for Mr. Crane. And the guy said, well, uh, do you have a, an appointment or a pass? I said, no, dude, I've got this thing. If I don't get this to Mr. Crane, you and I are both going to be looking for work. He said, okay, do you know where it is? I had no idea. I said, of course I do. And I drove right down to the lot. You're such a liar. Parked, I parked my car, and I had no idea where I was going, so I started asking, where's Barry Crane's office? I found out. It was way on the east side of the lot in a little bungalow. And I went in there, and uh, I saw his office door, and I walked in, and he had a receptionist by the name of Olga. Olga. Who, she was quite a battle axe, about six feet tall, short blonde hair, and a scowl that would wilt flowers. Tall woman. Yeah, and she was not pleasant. And I said, hi, is Mr. Crane around? She said, who are you? I said, well, my name is Bob McCullough. I'm here to talk about uh, the job. I understand you might be hiring in April. She said, it's only November. Why are you here? I said, well, I just, I was on the lot. Lie, lie, lie. I was on the lot. I thought I'd drop by just to say hi. She said, well, he's very busy. Come back in April. Well, I knew I wouldn't have much of a chance in April. So I said, if you don't mind, I'll just sit here in the, in the foyer and I'll wait for him. And if he has a minute, I'll just say hi. She said, sit wherever you want, but he's not going to talk to you. She was pretty rude. But I was already on the lot. I figured I'm in the door. I'm not leaving. So for the next... Gosh, it felt like all day, probably five or six hours. Barry Crane kept walking past me. How he did you know it was Barry he Crane? He never looked in my direction. Well, because Olga would call him Barry, and he would bark orders at her. And nobody would dress like that if they weren't somebody. And Barry Crane was the kind of guy, he was Mr. Monochromatic. The day I saw him, he was wearing royal blue. And I don't mean just a royal blue shirt, but a royal blue watch band royal blue slacks, a royal blue belt, royal wow. blue socks, royal blue shoes. That was a bit of a sight to behold. And he always had a little scarf around his neck, and he had these very Liberace sideburns, and just a flamboyant air about him. And that was the initial impression I got. This guy is very flamboyant. So around 4 o'clock, he finally looks in my direction and says, Who are you? I said, Hi, I'm my, my name is Bob McCullough. I just want to talk to you about the job. He said, The job? That's not till April. And he walked right past me, walked in his office, slammed the door. I didn't know what to do, so I sat there. And I just kept sitting there thinking, I'll just wear out my welcome one way or the other. Around 6.30, he comes out and he says, you're still here. I said, Mr. Crane, I just want five minutes. just want to introduce myself. He said, fine, come on in. So I walked in. I gave my, he said, you have about two minutes. Tell me everything I need to know. I told him everything I thought he needed to know about that I was at the NBC page staff. And I was on a fast track, blah, 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 basically, basically selling myself. Did you tell him you were a liar? <laughs> I did not tell him. I, was, I think he knew I was a liar sure. if I was already in the lot. Yeah. And um, he said, well, when I interview in April, I'll keep you in mind. Nice meeting you. Shakes my hand. I'm out of there. I go back to my job the next day. I'm ushering old ladies in a let's make a deal. I'm answering the phones at Laugh-In. And the phone rings one of 500 times that day. I answer it, and I say, you know, stage six. I'm looking, it was Olga on the phone. I'm looking for Bob McCullough. She didn't know it was me answering the phone. I said, this is Bob. Hold on. Oh. The next voice on the phone is Barry Crane's. Is this Bob? Yes. Mr. Crane? When can you start? Oh, exciting. How exciting is Just that? Just like that. I said, I, well, I can start tomorrow. Be here at 7 o'clock. 
In the morning. In the morning. I said, I'll be there. Now, I, I was used to showing up at NBC around 10 because you work from 10 to 8, that kind of a thing. Well, at Paramount, the job with Barry Crane started at dawn and it ended long after nightfall. And Barry Crane was the associate producer of two major, major hit shows on CBS at that time. Mission Impossible, the original Mission Impossible, and Mannix, which uh, starred Mike Connors. And it was a kind of a pro forma procedural detective show with really good characters. And I found myself working on two of the major hits of that generation. Bruce Geller had created, developed, and written both shows and ran that in such an impeccable manner that their success was almost preordained. Working on Mission as I did for about almost two years was probably one of the most educational, seminal experiences I've ever had in terms of what it takes to really make something work in television. And what it takes is seven days a week, 18 hours a day of complete focus. You cannot be thinking about other stuff. There's just too much to do if you want to make it right. Didn't you find, I did at least anyway, no matter how many times I walked on a studio lot, no matter which one it was, whether it was Paramount or Universal or uh, any one of them, it was such an exciting feeling when you when you walk on the lot and people are pushing things and there's actors walking around. It's, well, the sets and props and flats. Oh, it's and, just so much fun. Well, what you realize, what, the feeling I got, and again, it's the first time I've ever been on a like a movie studio lot. The feeling is that you are in a different world. Oh, definitely. That everything is different. The people are different. Everybody's creative, even if it's just the guy sweeping the stage or the craft service man who serves the you know the snacks and the food and prepares the coffee in the morning. But everybody's pretty excited because they know that it's a difficult place to gain entree to and that what they're doing really has impact out in the world. What One thing that really did impress me, when you look at the numbers of people that watch one TV series, more people will see that TV series than have ever seen or will ever see all of Shakespeare combined. Bruce Geller's writing on Mission Impossible probably impacted more people than William Shakespeare ever did. So, so did you actually work on Mission Impossible? Yeah, I was the production coordinator under uh, Dale Tarter and Al Godfrey, who had preceded me from the NBC page staff and worked their way up to associate producer and production coordinator. And I was just... I guess I was just called the, the office boy or the assistant. So, so let me get this straight. So when you showed up and you were with this this character, this caricature, Barry, Barry Crane, uh-huh. what did he tell you off well, the bat? I, he told me right off the bat, you'll be here every day at 6 and you won't leave until I leave. Well, that sounded okay because I figured the guy has normal hours. Well, boy, was I wrong. Not married and compulsive to the max. Barry worked 15-hour days at a minimum, and he expected me to be there before the stage doors opened and to be there when the stage doors closed, which means I was there Long be- hours. I was there before makeup showed up. I was there before the actors showed up, and I stayed until the camera department wrapped up all the camera gear and got everything shipped off to the lab. Well, you were young. And it was a real baptism of fire. And who wouldn't want to be in that position? But it's called paying your dues. Right. You know, I don't think anybody makes it in the business anymore, even today, without learning something from the ground up. And that's the paying your dues thing, which is, you know, I think probably fundamental to a long career like I like I managed to have. So 
Um, being at Paramount gave me access to many different aspects of production, not the least of which was the writing. And I realized that the writers are the ones who really had the best schedules. They didn't come in until 9.30 or 10 every day. And they didn't have to get dressed up. They didn't have to be on stage. They didn't have to memorize lines. They never had to go on location and freeze to death or bake in the hot summer sun. They were in the office writing scripts. And if they wrote in a script, there's a giant sign above the tunnel, somebody on the crew had to go make a giant sign and put it on the tunnel. So you got to really kind of play God in, a res- in certain respects. So the two, I was there two years, uh-huh. and I got introduced to everybody at the studio, and everybody got to understand I was Barry's boy. Now, Mission Impossible, uh, did you come at the beginning of the show when they I, first started? I came in at the end of the first season just as Martin Landau and Barbara Bain were trying to renegotiate their contracts. I know that we... <laughs> Uh, we'll be touching upon that when we do the show, the podcast, just of Mission Impossible. Yeah, we're going to so dig into some I don't want to get into too much of that. Right. So you got in after it started. Right. And uh, it must have been quite a show to work on. Well, it, it was so complicated. It was extremely complicated. Uh, if you recall, just the, the title sequence had 20 cuts of details and things being wired and stuff. And. Um, if you remember the music, uh, which we have in our intro, the Lalo Schifrin theme song, to this great d- music to this day, is used in every single one of the Mission Impossible features. Uh, and the cool thing about it, which I didn't realize until much later, is that it had a certain tempo that hasn't been duplicated since. Right, right. So then uh, you were on there for, for two years. Right. And then what? Well, like all things, uh, shows get canceled. And there were huge budget problems on Mission Impossible. Bruce Geller used to fight with the studio. And ultimately, the, the network let the show die. And they canceled the show. And I was suddenly without a job. Which what was, happened to Barry Crane? Well, he moved on and he became a director. Oh. And he was a semi-professional, not a professional, but he was a, uh, the most highly paid bridge player in the world. And uh, I'll tell you about that later. But he went on to his own life. And I was suddenly looking for a job. Because I've been at Paramount for, for the two years, Sam Strangis, who is uh, the new head of production at the studio, had a new show on called The Immortal, starring Chris George, about a guy who had this great blood, and the bad guys wanted to capture so him So you met uh, Sam <coughs> at Paramount Studios? Right, I met Sam there. And The Immortal was going to be shot on a very tight budget. So tight, they couldn't build sets. And they needed somebody to find locations for every single episode. I didn't even really know what that meant, but I became a location manager. And they handed me a script, and they said, go find where we're going to shoot this thing. And I wound up doing that for a couple of years at Paramount. Um, Sam's son, Greg Strangis, and I became good friends. We did some writing together, some early writing before I had an agent, before I was in the Writers Guild, which I'll tell you about later. But um, it was a great experience, and it let me discover very quickly that any job is a good job to have. You may at the studio. At any studio. You may not be climbing the ladder as fast as you want to, or you may not be getting the opportunities you think you deserve. But if you're on the inside, you're on the inside, and people know you. Contact with any one of them can get you. Exactly. And yeah. things can happen overnight, or they can happen over a period of years, which is my experience. It took me probably three or four years to really figure out what I wanted to do and how to do it. So $6 million man, so how long were you so, on there? So $6 million man occurred 
I'm uh, sorry, you were on The Immortal. I was on The Immortal. I'm sorry. And uh, that show got canceled, and there was a studio uh, management turnover at Paramount, and Sam went, out, went wound up going to Universal as the line producer on a new show for Harv Bennett, the executive producer of Six Million Dollar Man, starring Lee Majors. A huge TV show. But who knew at the time? State of the art. It was state of the art, but it was kind of a new concept, half man, half robot, kind of Mm -hmm. the Terminator, but a Mm -hmm. good guy. Mm -hmm. And Sam called me up one day and said, hey, why don't you come over to Universal and you can be the location manager on Six Million Dollar Man. So you were becoming the location manager I was a production guy. So was there a department for location managers at other studios? At Paramount, there wasn't. But when I went to Universal, it was a new world, completely different. Universal was a fairly new studio, and they didn't have one or two series on the air. They had 22 full-time television shows on the air, and they had a location department with a dozen people in it. It was like a real office environment. I'd been used to working kind of as the Lone Ranger, the only location manager on the lot. And here I was at Universal... And suddenly, I'm surrounded by guys who've been doing this for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And they have protocols, and they have paperwork to fill out. It was a real new experience for me. But um, it gave me greater entree to more scripts to read. I was suddenly on a studio lot where there were 20 scripts a week you could read, if you could find them. And I was real good at finding them because I was determined to, to become a writer. So let's briefly talk about, because um, we'll get into detail later. Sure. Um, who were the actors on well, Six Mill? Well, on Six Mill, it was Lee Majors, and uh, Richard Richard Anderson played Oscar Goldman. Um, and, you know, Six Million Dollar Man uh, kind of evolved, and then the Bionic Woman came about right. a year later. But Six Million Dollar, uh, Lee Majors uh, and his haughty wife, Fair Fawcett, they were the rage. They were like the Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie at the time, huge. which we will get into huge, later. Huge, huge. Um, so you had a good experience in Six Million Dollar Man. The most important thing that happened to me at Universal in those years, I was in the location department one day, and I was uh, doing some paperwork or, I don't know, just goofing around. I had my feet up on the desk, and I look up, and there is this girl. She looked to be about six feet tall, and she had legs that went from the ground all the way up to the top of her legs where there were these hot pants. Oh, yes, hot pants was the rage. And on top of the hot pants, there was a yellow T-shirt. I think Betty Boop was the graphic on the T-shirt. And she had a long, to me it looked like an Indian braid, long dark hair, and just the most incredible exotic looks. That It was kind of a Kirk Douglas moment for me, where you you can see nothing except the light at the end of the tunnel, and at the end of the tunnel was her face. And I was really taken by that. And her name was Suzanne Herrera. <laughs> and that's, that's the that's the first day that's, that's the right. first day I saw you. That's right. So why don't you? How did I get there? Tell us how you got there. And I'll make this brief because we'll put this into another podcast. Okay. okay. Briefly, um, you weren't I, there as an actress. No, no, you, I was not at that point. You were hovering around my office for some no, reason. No, no, um, I was. Uh, going to school part-time um college and i was working at a kmart part-time we don't want to say that you were a bruin do we okay and um no because my se friends would hate me go troy uh anyway and uh i was working with a friend of mine her name is pam and i spent the night over at pam's house she was kind of a hippie working at kmart and mm-hmm. i was work 
going to school during the day and working at night. And her father walks in uh, her house. She was living with her parents. And he said, Pam, you got to get out of Kmart. How about if I get you a job at Universal Studios in the credit department? And she said, there is no way I'm going to San Francisco. And he was very disappointed, you could tell. He just wanted to help his daughter. And he turned around to me and said, would you like to work at Universal Studios? And I said, well, sure. What would I do? Because you were working at Kmart. Kmart and going to school. Got it. And so, and also at the, anyway, so uh, he said, just go to um, the credit union at Universal Studios, talk to a Bert, his name was Bert, I forgot his last name, Mm -hmm. tell him I sent you, he'll pretend to interview you, and you'll have the job. I said, what would I be doing? Just ask Bert. I said, okay. So I drove to Universal Studios, but it was across the street. So I have a question. Were you wearing the hot pants for the interview? Well, hot pants was it was the enraged it, it was like wearing a so skirt. you were wearing hot pants for an interview with a guy named Bert right to go work in a bank basically kind of. a credit union yeah. at the studio so anyway I showed up Bert was a nice family guy at the end of the interview he said well you know if he, if P- Pam's dad Joe sent you then you're the person and I said what do I do and he said <laughs> well what happens is everybody that works at Universal Studios belongs to the credit union they have their savings here, and then sometimes they withdraw the money. You hand out the checks. And they, they made car loans and stuff right. like that. Right, uh, but I didn't do that. There's three or four women that worked in the office behind me, older ladies. Oh, they did the real work. They really did the real work. They needed like a receptionist. They needed a hot pants. Shh. I get it. Right. Okay. So I said, well, I go to school during the day, so I would, it was at the end of the semester, so I decided to go to school at night. Just How old to get are you? How old are you at that time? Uh, I was... Uh, Probably like 20 years old. Going, I, I was going to be 20. Going to be 20. Going, right. In hot pants at right. Universal Studios. Right. So anyway, I showed up for the job. It was so much fun. Now, I got bit by the showbiz bug because at the time I was going with a, a young man. His name was Tony. And he was an aspiring actor. And he was really into acting classes and stuff. Tony Lucas. Right. Previously, aka Tony Lucatorto, who was Italian, I still think. a good friend of ours, yes. right? Anyway, we'll get him on this podcast talking about his acting career. Right, he had an interesting career. He did a lot. Anyway, so um, I was already in the acting thing. I would go with him to, you know, little screenings and stuff. So I started looking around, and I had a lot of fun, and I got to meet some actors and directors. Anyway, and you found out there was more to Universal than the credit union. Right. And I made a friend across the lot at the main lot her name was Sandy and uh, she said why don't you come over and work on the main lot where the production where it's really happening where the action is she says come on over and um, interview it with my boss and you can become a production secretary I said what's that she goes oh don't worry about it just come over I talked with uh, her boss he liked me and she said just go over to the um, personnel department take a typing test what, what, what? Question: Were you wearing hot pants for that interview too? Wow! Uh, get off of the hot pants. <laughs> anyway, so I didn't know how to type. In those days, nobody had a computer, so typing was a class that you would take in school. Like on a real typewriter, like an IBM Selectric. Right. So I was so nervous because I didn't know how to type. And uh, Sandy said, "Don't worry about it. Just do your best." Yet the job is ninety percent typing. It's all typing. Okay. Because you would type up production. Reports, reports and give it to all the right. cast call the sheets right. right very important because if you make a mistake it could cost millions of dollars big money so i went to uh gray celia was her name i met another nice made another nice friend she was head 
of the personnel department. I took the typing test. So basically, there was a mafia of young girls who were kind of watching out for each other right. over there. And, and I and they were all kind of nice looking. And I failed miserably. It was embarrassing. I think I got like ten words on a page or something. Anyway. So it was sent over to Sandy, and Sandy said, hey, she called me up, you're hired. I said, I did not pass the test. She goes, it doesn't matter. It'll work out. So I Welcome to Hollywood. came to the production department, and I was standing, waiting for my desk, and that's when, that's I, when I met I, you. That's when I saw you. You were waiting for furniture. Yes. I wish I'd never given you a desk, because I sure liked you when you were standing oh, up. Thank you. So we'll talk about me later on in the podcast. Yes. Uh, how one thing led to another. The value of hot pants. Yes. Clearly established. Needless to say, I started taking acting lessons because I knew I wanted to be... You didn't want to be typing or learning not, how to type Not forever. the rest of my life. It was boring. Okay. Anyway. Well, I think we've about hit the uh, our time limit here. We're trying to keep this uh, succinct enough. And um, I think the next podcast we'll be talking about uh, what where I went beyond $6 million man and how I actually got in the Writers Guild. And, and started, how you finally got an agent. Got an agent, started selling some scripts, and then how maybe we'll start working in how you actually got into Screen Actors Guild and uh, the, the amazing number of things that you actually did. Weren't those fun days? It was a gas. It was a gas. It was well, the, so much fun. It, it wasn't that it was easy. It's that we were there and trying and willing to, willing to take any opportunity that came along. And you and I were both at Universal at a time when they had lots of shows on, lots of action. It's heyday. I think it's an absolute heyday mm-hmm. when so many classic shows Life came out. Life was good. And that's classic those, TV. That's the generation when the the Universal Studios tour tram actually went through your soundstage while you were shooting. That's right. That was when they started before the tour and the park. It right. was just you would just go through the lot. Right. Right. The tour was you like twenty people a, a day. Remember what a hassle it was. You'd see these. You'd have tram to stop. You'd have to stop. Sh- you'd have to stop shooting because oh. here comes the tram. Right. But they had a great idea right and, and to, to this day they still people still want to go to the back lot yep yep so that's the end of podcast two i think yes it is and uh just want to encourage everybody to go to where hollywoodhides.com and uh please uh check out amazon.com links on our site uh we're having uh increasing interest from sponsors uh check out some of our hot links uh our partners isn't this fun? Chance McCullough Music is up there. Take a listen to some of his incredible tracks. Aren't you having fun? It's a blast, yeah. Talking about this? It's Well, it's uh, good memories, and I think it also is instructive to people who want to know more about the business and maybe want to know how to get into it themselves and, and how to go from point A to point B. So we'll get into much more of that detail as time goes by. But for now, this is where Hollywood hides. I'm Bob McCullough. And this is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. And we'll catch you next time. Adios. They come from Chillicothes and Paducahs with their bazookas to get their names up in lights. All armed with photos from local rotos with their hair in ribbons and legs in tights. Hooray for Hollywood. You have no way of knowing who You'll be another Papa Dion, your name and me on. If you get lucky, you could. Yes, buddy, you'll arrive if you can top his five. Hooray for Hollywood! Hooray for Hollywood!